This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. So we are here uh, continuing our Christmas uh, series through, through Advent, our Advent series. Um, we've kind of been looking at hymns. Uh, and to introduce this one, um, I'd like to cover this idea of waiting, this expectant waiting. Uh, and you know, you, it's obviously most imp- uh, poignant in children. When you ask them to wait, you can just see it bottling out of them. They just can't quite do it. Um, they're just so excited if it's a good thing and if they can almost see it. But if it seems like it's too far away, there's despair and they're defeated, right? Just like head hung low. It's never going to happen. This isn't just true with children, though. Uh, it only takes uh, one visit to a doctor's office in Puerto Rico for me, me to feel the very same things about waiting. Um, there's a lot of waiting involved in our lives. And I've, I've found uh, that I can be a very impatient person. Um, very impatient. And I wanted to ask myself, like, why am I so impatient? Like, why can I get so uh, frustrated by these things? Is it because of my own pride? Do you know how important I am, all the things I have to do today, that I would be so delayed? Or is it because of fear? I really need an answer to this medical problem that is keeping me awake at night in pain, and I'm afraid and I would really like an answer. And this waiting is extra torment. Waiting is even more difficult when it feels like there may not be an end. Maybe after finishing the doctor's appointment where they say, we still don't know. We're going to have to wait for more tests. I think that sometimes waiting for Jesus feels like it's never going to end. Our day-to-day lives feel like it's the same yesterday as it was today and will be tomorrow. And we know that Jesus is coming back, but I honestly can't uh, exert the energy that it takes to keep eagerly expecting him anymore. So as we've been looking at Christmas hymns, we've seen some biblical themes show up in the past few weeks. We looked at joy in the hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. We looked at peace in the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The hymn this week, though, that's providing us our theme of waiting and how to wait comes from kind of a haunting hymn that we all sing around Christmas titled, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it's haunting because as it sings, all of these things that they're asking to come and make right can be suddenly interrupted by this wonderful chorus of rejoice, rejoice. And it seems almost out of place, right? The minor key notes of our waiting is all of a sudden this inbreaking of rejoice and we're like, why are we we rejoicing again? What are we rejoicing about? O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, uh, the, Eng- the lyrics were translated into English uh, in 1850. Uh, the music appears to be derived from a funeral song sung by French nuns that's originated maybe around the 1500s. The original origination of the lyrics hails from somewhere around 1100 of a chant that was often chanted in Christian churches in 1100 during Advent. Christians have been singing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel for almost a thousand years in one way or another, singing in wait 
for the Lord's second coming. God's people had to wait a long time for Jesus to come. Uh, today, our sermon passage is from Isaiah 35. Um, the people who originally heard Isaiah 35 would have to wait some 700 years before Jesus would show up. 700 years. And if we take the earliest originating date for O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's been um, a thousand years of us singing that song, but it's been 2,000 years of Christians waiting for Jesus to come again. How do we wait? How can we continue to do this kind of waiting? How can we hold on to this expectation? My hope is today that Isaiah 35 will teach us how to do that, teach us how Christians have waited, not even before Jesus came and after they have waited, that Christians needed to know, they needed to have hope, and they needed to live. Those are going to be our three points today. They needed to know, they needed to hope, and they needed to live. But if you would, please stand for the reading of Isaiah 35. This is God's word that teaches us how to wait. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness." The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away." This is God's word to us. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. As we learn to wait, we need to, we need to know, we need to hope, and we need to live. And we're going to start with no. Um, I mean, I still love Legos, right? Uh, Legos are fun. Uh, they're a pain legitimately to step on. Um, but Legos are fun. Uh, now, I enjoyed them much more at a younger age, and I remember at one point getting um, a, a set um, that was like a tractor trailer that had like uh, indie race cars that could be parked into it for Christmas uh, or for birthday or something like that. And you know, I had spent uh, what seemed like long hours, uh, maybe to an eight-year-old, I can't remember how long it was, constructing this thing, flipping through the pages, building the Legos, making it perfect, right? Um, now, my brother, my next youngest brother, he's, he's three years younger than me. And uh, maybe a week or so after I had completed this project and I'm relishing in the glories of what I had made, um, I, there was a friend that was over and we had played with it for some time. And then at some point, we're in another room and I recognize that my brother is nowhere to be found. Now, my brother and I shared a room and I'm thinking to myself, he's surely in that room. 
because he wanted so bad to play with that thing, and I wouldn't let him. Um, because his kind of play was a little bit more destructive, and I had labored too hard to build it. I was afraid that something would get in and separate all the hard work that I had done. Part of our difficulty with waiting is thinking that we have been abandoned, forgotten, or left behind. And I think God's creation, ourselves included, might feel like they've been left behind, forgotten, or abandoned. Because something got in that wasn't supposed to be there. God had a good creation. It was perfect in every way. The best God making the best creation in the best way. He was the best Lego builder there ever was. But something had gotten in. Something had dismantled it. And it wasn't simply just a couple of bricks out of place. It was separated apart at its very foundation, brick by brick. Satan had convinced the pinnacle of God's creation, man and woman, Adam and Eve, that they could be like God. And this resulted in the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind dying. And God's creation, which should have had no end, had an end. God's creation started dying. Instead of life, there was death. Instead of peace, there was war. Instead of work being good, it was cursed. Instead of love being pure, it was advantageous. Instead of a garden, there were thorns, wilderness, and a desert. You see, throughout the Bible, creation is bound to what happens to its caretakers. Creation itself is bound to what happens to you and to me. Throughout the Bible, creation itself is described as groaning out to God, groaning out in order to praise Him. I always thought that was a funny thing. Like, what does creation have to do uh, with, like, praising God? Aren't they just praising God like they've always been? Well, if humanity was to tend to creation, it seems that their job was to make sure that creation itself, like this, this earth, everything around it, our families, everything that's included in everything that's been created, was to be in right relationship with God. It's almost as if humans' jobs when tending to the garden was to make creation praise God better. That was their job. And when humanity was in right relationship with God, creation would be in right relationship with God. But because humanity is not in right relationship with God, creation cannot praise God to the fullest extent that it was made to. And it groans. It cries out. In some sense, it says, Lord, I was made for so much more than this, and my caretakers have failed me. Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and the Pharisees wanted the people to stop praising him? But Jesus said if the people stopped praising him, that the rocks themselves would cry out. Maybe another example is when Jesus died on the cross, the earth shook. Because creation itself saw humanity, had, humanity had God himself come to them, and they killed him, and horrified, the earth trembled, almost as if the final brick was separated, completely dismantled. This is how creation is used throughout scripture time and time again. Um, 
It's always ready to obey the commands of its maker. When Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, they calm down immediately. And yet creation itself wonders if it's been abandoned by God. A Lego project left in its room to be destroyed by its brother. But when Isaiah 35, 1 through 2 breaks onto the scene, something has changed. The deserted places, literally the deserts, are glad. They rejoice and they blossom. They're all of a sudden full of life. There is renewed glory and majesty. Why? Because God had come in verse 4. But before we focus on this transformation too much, I just want us to first pause and realize that creation itself wasn't abandoned. It could be that, you know, something got in the way that it wasn't to and it was broken beyond repair and God says, I'll scrap it and start over. That's too much work to go back and fix. Maybe even creation itself was wondering, but it wasn't abandoned. God came to them and caused them to be bursting full of life again. And as we continue through our passage past the first two verses, you'll see that the analogy changes to not just uh, creation, the land and the deserts, but also our bodies. God didn't abandon our bodies, and he hasn't abandoned us. You see, God didn't look at his creation and damage and say it isn't worth it. He said, it is so worth it. I will pay the highest cost to make it right. God doesn't look at you and say, no matter your background, no matter the damage that has been done, and say you aren't worth it. He says, I will pay the highest cost to make it right. I'm not just going to start over with new stuff, with raw materials. You are worth it. The first thing in learning to wait with great expectation is to know that we are not abandoned. And we know that we're not abandoned because he has already paid the price. Christmas itself is about God himself coming to pay the ultimate price to make all things new. Things will not always continue as they were. He came to look people straight in the eyes and even creation itself and say, you are not abandoned. I have come to rescue you. We need to know that the price has already been paid. Now, there's a lot of ways that this could implicate how we live in the world, but I thought as our passage deals a lot with how our bodies are restored, maybe we could focus there. We're often ashamed of our bodies. We all age, of course, so they stop working like they're supposed to. We're ashamed of the weight we carry and the disabilities we might have. And if we don't have perceived disabilities yet, we're afraid of the day that they would come because it shows that the world is actually disintegrating brick by brick. Things aren't getting better. There is a shame in the shape, the mass market desirability, and the smell of our bodies that we honestly believe that God thinks it's worth abandoning. But God does not abandon your body. A couple of things. Um, Jesus himself, Christmas, God himself became incarnate. 
And what we mean by that is that he took on carnal flesh, a body. It was so worth it to him, so undisgusting, so worth saving that he would take one himself. And not just that, it's not like he assumed it for a little bit of time, for 33 years while he walked on the earth. I think we often forget that he died in his body and he rose again in his body and he ascended in his body and Jesus right now is in his fleshly body. And he's been in that fleshly body for 2,000 years. It is good and it is worth it. I think in the long, expectant waiting as we feel the decay of our bodies, there can be a despair that God doesn't care about it, that it's been abandoned. And that's just not true. We have to know that we are not abandoned. The price has already been paid. But the knowledge isn't enough, right? The knowledge needs to develop. Um, like, it's just one thing to, like, coldly know facts, um, but it's another thing to like experience them, uh, for, for it to kind of move from your head to your heart is often a description that's moved. And that way that I'm going to describe that today is the move from knowledge to hope. We need to also hope. Now, to stick with my uh, Lego analogy, right, I often broke down my Legos into other creations, uh, admittedly lesser creations, just, just to be clear, because uh, the instructions make something beautiful, you know, but then when you follow it on your own, it is beautiful in its own way, um, but not nearly as beautiful. And there's always some, like, leftover pieces that are um, unused, uh, discarded, unneeded, you know? Those are usually the ones that get stepped on. And I think part of our fear, right, is, that, of course, God doesn't abandon his creation, and maybe he's making something new, but are we some of the pieces that are left behind? And like, what about this in-between time where it's not quite made back to the way that it should be? Where, where do I fit in this? Am I the piece that's stepped on? It can't just stay in our heads. It's got to move to our hearts. And how Isaiah is trying to do this in his passage is to convince his people that th there's not just a temporary recreation uh, there's not just a cyclical event of uh, breakdown and recreation and breakdown and recreation that's going to continue on for forever. Because I think, I think that's what we often think. Remember as I started, like the expectation gets hard to wait for Jesus for over 2,000 years um, or just in our lifetimes because, well, yesterday is the same as today and it's going to be the same as tomorrow. And I'm not sure I really believe that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. What Isaiah is trying to do is say there is a permanent transformation that's coming. Verse 3, there's going to strengthen weak hands. There's no returning back to weak hands. He's going to firm up feeble knees. He's going to remove anxiety. He's going to heal the blind and deaf in verse 6, the lame and mute. Uh, verse 7 re returns to the metaphor of creation itself, where there was once deserts. There's now going to be springs of water and life, and predatory animals will not be around anymore and so on and so on. And this change, the way that Isaiah describes it, is permanent. You see, God isn't uh, breaking down and restoring, breaking down and restoring, just creating a big cycle of our life as if we'll just keep going through this over and over and over again. There is a permanent transformation coming. Now, why does a permanent transformation give us hope? <laughs> and a permanent transformation gives us hope because it means that there's actually going to be an end. 
there's actually going to be rest. Humans can bear a lot of struggle, a lot of very difficult things if they know when it's going to end. If you tell someone that this pain is going to stop on this day, it makes it immediately more bearable. By this point, people, uh, you guys know that I love movies. Um, Saving Private Ryan is one of those great movies. And one of the things that I think we see over and over again, um, or that I think about a lot, is that soldiers can endure uh, unbearably difficult times because they know that there is an end date. They may not know exactly when it is, but they know that it is coming. And so in Save It Private Ryan, we see uh, some of this. Tom Hanks plays uh, Captain Miller, and they're on a mission to save Private Ryan. Uh, and as they're searching, uh, they get involved in a number of skirmishes. And uh, at the point where we're entering the story, uh, they've just lost uh, one or two members of, of their team. And morale is really low. It's devolving really quick. And so at one point, there's another private in the group who's kind of talking sass to the captain. And he's kind of uh, ignoring it and taking the high road. Uh, but as he escalates, one of his sergeants gets involved and ends up pulling a sidearm on him because he's threatening to desert. And finally, Captain Miller steps in, and he gives this impassioned speech. But to understand the speech, we've got to understand that they've been taking bets this whole time to figure out what he did when he, did back, what he, did when he was back home, because they only knew him as this hardened captain who was a great leader to follow because he could do hard things. And so they, they wanted to know what he did. And so he finally interrupts the thing, and he says, hey, what's the bet at on, on, on what I do back home? What's it at now? 300? I'm a high school English teacher. And as Captain Miller continues, he's laying out that this mission to save Private Ryan is a mission, but it's a lesser mission that serves a greater mission. And Captain Miller's greater mission is to get home to his wife. He recognizes that the journey may have changed him. He hopes that his wife will still recognize him. But he says, if I've got to do this mission to go save Private Ryan, and that gets me closer to getting home to my wife, then that's the mission. For Captain Miller, there was an end, a rest, a permanence that gave him immense hope. There was a bigger mission that put the lesser mission in context. And this hope was so great that it actually caused people to follow him. The struggles of life can seem like they have no end. We can face the same things day after day, the same despair in our jobs, the same difficult spots in our marriage, the school shootings and natural disasters, these things that will be forever and ever and seemingly have no end. And we can be exhausted of saying goodbye to our friends. We can try to come up with a mission that makes sense for our lives. And so we try to give ourselves something like something's got to give this meaning and I'm going to strive after it and find it for all that I can. And I've got to break the news to you, whatever mission you assign yourself is not big enough. It is not big enough to make sense of all of the disparate pieces of your life. The only person who has a big enough vision is Jesus himself. Jesus' mission is so big that it puts all other missions into context because it will bring a permanent end to all the cycles. 
We may know that God has not abandoned us because the price has already been paid, but we may not know why certain things keep happening. We may not know why on a good and godly mission so many people seem to lose their lives. We may not know why we ask for children and spouses and friendship, and we seem to receive isolation and loneliness instead. We may not know why he has given us this mission to this place in this time, but we hope and not on a baseless hope, not on wishful thinking hope, but we hope in the one who actually made the blind see. You see, Isaiah's audience didn't actually get to see that. But we can fast forward to the New Testament and see Jesus do all of these things. He says, I'm the one that is bringing a permanent end. I'm the one that is healing all the wounds. I am the one that is wiping away every tear. I am the one that is making the deaf hear and the dead live. And our hope is in this one. And our, the hope is so strong that it drives us to see that it's almost here. His promise is so sure that he's coming back. And that hope, so convincing that he fulfilled these prophecies over all these years that we say we can almost taste it. We may already know that the price has been paid, but we live in this time where we can almost taste the permanence, almost taste the permanent goodness that is coming. And so we are filled. The knowledge moves from our head to our heart in hope. Now, I know that knowledge and hope seem like actions, um, but we, we actually want something a little bit more tangible, right? Like we want something to do. <laughs> like we're here waiting. Do we just sit here and like twiddle our thumbs? And it's like, okay, great. No, hope, got it. So I can just stay seated in this chair and never move? No. Our third point is that while we wait, we also learn to live. Um, I'm wondering if you guys have ever heard about life being described as a journey. You guys have all heard that? Like life's described as a journey. And the analogy of our life as a journey um, is a good one. And the Bible has a lots of analogies that would support that, of sojourning, of traveling through the land. Um, we're actually about to see this at the end of Isaiah 35. What we learn is that as we're journeying through this time, although we can almost taste it, we're on a journey because we're not yet there. We're not yet there. Life still needs to be lived. Isaiah shows, shows us how this work, works in verses uh, 6 and, and following, um, where the waters break forth and the pools and springs show up. Um, but there's also, as we continue through, this highway that appears. This highway that's surrounded by these waters breaking forth and pools and springs and uh, no dangerous animals. There's no danger on this highway. The unclean are not found there because the redeemed walk there. They journey. They live there. Now, it's almost as if creation in this analogy is in complete and utter darkness. So it's almost like Isaiah is speaking from the view of creation itself. It's like speaking outside of the people, right? They're seeing the people walk through the land. And so Creation is in complete and utter darkness with violence happening all around, but there's a highway that runs through the barren wasteland. And on this highway, every once in a while, there are travelers. And those travelers bring light with them. And although they never stay long, they spread a little bit of light on the earth. They bring a little bit of water with them. Things bloom and grow. 
In a weary world, a weary earth looks at that and despite all of the destruction around, says, there it is. That's what mankind was supposed to be. That's what I'm supposed to be like when man and woman are who they're supposed to be. I get little glimpses of it now. These people will heal the war-torn earth. They'll bring peace where there was division. They are on their way to the promised land that they can almost taste. And although they are on the journey themselves experiencing the hardship of the wilderness as well, they spread goodness around them. Along this highway gives hope to all of creation that this permanent transformation will come. The people who live along this journey, who, who journey along and spread life, It seems that they spread things like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. And the earth rejoices. Along the highway, holiness is spread. Next to the highway, flowers bloom. Life comes back again. Tangible, here and now, Christian living brings goodness back into the world. And that's why Christians work to see goodness flourish wherever they are at any moment. I think what makes that so difficult is that a lot of times it can seem fruitless. It can seem like it's wasted. The striving to see the life and goodness spread is difficult and we get discouraged. Continuing to meet with a friend who has the same scathing remarks about your faith, forgiving that family member time and time again, sitting down to marriage counseling, confessing your sins, admitting that there is not progression, but there's actually regression. Things are getting worse. These things don't feel successful, they feel pointless, they feel wasted. There's an amazingly uh, godly man that I know. Uh, and he spent a large majority of his, his life, his free time in his life, it was not his job, um, cultivating gardens around his houses, where, wherever he lived, he cultivated gardens. Um, and he planted a lot of flowers, just a tremendous amount of flowers. Um, and so I remember one time someone asking him, like, why didn't you plant things that were more productive, you know, like some fruits or vegetables or something that you could, like, give back to the earth? And, or, or to the people, you know, um, or to, even to yourself. Like, why, why, why wouldn't the earth be productive? Isn't it a little pointless? And he said, even those momentary glimpses of beauty glorify God and are worth fighting for. God has made everything with a purpose, but not everything is productive <laughs> in our sense of the term. Of course, there's a goodness and beauty in making the land productive, but there's a goodness and beauty in fighting the whole year long, fertilizing and nurturing and tending to see that one momentary annual bloom. It's worth it. There's a goodness and beauty laboring to create beauty in a place, even if you know it's going to be ripped up after you're gone. He moved to I don't know how many homes and did the same labor over and over and over again. And this man on his uh, journey, uh, seeing the almost tangible and yet living in the not yet continued time and time again to plant gardens that seemed fruitless, 
I thought that was a wonderful analogy for our life. Christians are people who live in the fight for that momentary bloom because they know and they hope. And I hope you see how these are all connecting. You can't live in expectation the way that you're supposed to if you don't know that God has already saved you and that you don't hope in the almost that you can taste. That there's a life worth spreading even if it seems fruitless is a worthwhile endeavor. There's a children's song that we've been uh, listening to recently in our house, and it's about Mary, the mother of Jesus, consoling Eve, uh, the first woman. Now, Eve needs consoling because she and her husband are the ones that brought uh, the, the death and havoc on the world. And so there's kind of this imagining of what it's going to be like when, when Eve and Mary uh, meet each other face to face. And so the song that is being sung is Mary consoling Eve, saying, Eve, my sister, the promised one is finally on his way. And the chorus of this song, again, it's a children's song, just repeats this phrase, almost not yet already. Almost not yet already. Almost not yet already. I can't think of a better phrase that marks people on that highway. Knowing that the already has been paid for, the almost is almost there. And yet in the not yet, we live. We sing along this highway, and Isaiah recognizes it as well. And we sing songs like this one, and we sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, because we know that God has not abandoned us because he's already sent his son. We know that the fullness of salvation is almost here, and we hope as we live in this not yet, we bring life, Christian life, to bear wherever we are. And so we continue to sing with our brothers and sisters along the road songs like these, songs like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, with a thousand years of Christian histories, and we'll continue singing it because Jesus is almost here. Amen. Jesus not only gave us uh, his words uh, to confirm uh, his promises to us, that he is almost here, but he, al he also wanted us to taste it. And I know I say that a lot, but like, again, remember that whole thing about how he's in his body? <laughs> and he told us to continue doing this thing until I come again. It's because he thinks our bodies are worth it. And he's like, I want you to taste and see that I am good. Taste and see my body broken for you. Taste my blood shed for you. And so... The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples as I, ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. See, this table uh, was, well, you know, today was set by our helpers. Uh, and we are here in Trinity Church. But what we proclaim by coming to this table is that Jesus himself set this table. 
that Jesus himself invites you to come taste and see that he's good. That Jesus himself says, don't lose hope. Know that it's already been paid for. Hope in that it's almost here. Taste it. It's almost here. So close you can almost taste it. And live in the not yet. For all those who are united to that Lord and his promises, I'd invite you to come to this table and eat. Uh, for those of you who don't know the Lord, who have not been united to him in baptism, who don't know if these promises are true for you, I'd ask you to refrain from this table, to not declare something with your outward actions um, that doesn't signify the inward reality of casting your whole life upon these promises as we wait. In a moment, I'll pray, and then we can come down the center aisle to these two serving stations. Um, as a note, there is gluten-free bread at this station um, on my right, your left. Um, so if you need that, please, please head that way and notify your server. Uh, there's also wine and grape juice. The wine is red and the grape juice is clear. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, allow us to taste and see that you have not abandoned us, that you are bringing a permanent resolution to these stories that will give us rest and that you have allowed us to live by your power even now. Allow these elements, this bread and this wine to unite us deeper in faith to Jesus this morning. We ask in his name, amen.